This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code SPOTIFY for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hey, Crime Salad listeners, welcome back to another episode of Crime Salad, where we talk true crime. My name is Ashley. And I'm Ricky. And Ricky, can you shout out our patrons this week? All right, patrons, we have Jada, Shauna, and Amy. Thank you guys so much. Remember, you can subscribe on Patreon or Apple Plus, whatever's better for you. You still get the bonus episodes and ad-free listening. Thank you all so much for supporting our show. We really, really appreciate it. October is Domestic Violence Awareness Month. So this week we are talking about coercive control. What is it? Well, according to the website DomesticShelters.org, someone who uses coercive control could be someone who dominates their partner and controls what they do, who they do it with, and how they do things, basically limiting someone's freedom. The website explains the weapons used are isolation, threats, humiliation. And also on the website DomesticShelters.org, it states that, quote, Coercive control strips away victims' independence, sense of self and basic rights, such as the right to make decisions about their own time, friends, and appearance, end quote. Now, before you continue with this episode, please be warned that it does include details some listeners may find triggering, which includes violence against a pregnant woman. Listener discretion advised. Lori K. Soares was just 14 years old when she met popular Orm High School junior Mark Hacking. Lori, who was usually shy and reserved, was immediately drawn to Mark's big personality and his celebrated antics, which regularly placed him at the center of attention. In fact, it was one of his many attention-seeking stunts that had caused Lori and Mark to finally cross paths in a fateful way. They were both among friends at a school-affiliated camping event at nearby Lake Powell. Mark, who would often injure himself intentionally for clout or attention, had decided to move the obviously hot pieces of wood in the campfire with his bare hands. Of course, he burned his hand in the process, and it was while Lori rendered first aid to Mark that the two first connected. That connection was immediate and strong, just like the connection they both shared to their Mormon faith. 
Both Lori and Mark were raised in the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, or as they currently refer to it as LDS. Unlike Mark, Lori came from a broken home. Her parents divorced when she was 10 years old, and her mother Thelma Soares moved Lori and her brother Paul to Orm, Utah from California, where they could be closer to their religious roots. Thelma was immediately impressed by Mark and the fact that he came from a very well-known and distinguished LDS family. Mark was one of seven children with three sisters and three brothers. His father was a prominent member of their church and a beloved local pediatrician. Like his brothers, Mark had plans for a future that included academic success, which was something highly valued in his family. Mark's future included medical school, where he planned to become an oncologist, which would be a cancer specialist. Now, in the LDS religion, it is common following high school graduation for young members to go on what is called a mission. A mission is where a young member of their church will go out into an assigned community where they will make attempts to convert members to their religion. Mark was sent to Manitoba, Canada. Usually these missions last for two years. However, Mark abruptly ended his mission when he allegedly became so injured he was sent back home to recover. Or at least that's one of the stories he told at the time. No one really knew the specifics other than Mark had somehow hurt his back. Whatever the reason, it must not have been too serious because Mark and Lori were still allowed to be married in the LDS temple in 1999. They were both 22 years old and only the most faithful and devout members of the LDS church are allowed to be married at the temple and given what's called temple privileges. They're also required to wear something called special temple garments. After graduation from the University of Utah, Lori began working as a trading assistant at the Salt Lake City branch of Wells Fargo Bank. Lori and Mark moved into an apartment close to campus while Mark finished up his honors degree in psychology, which he finally obtained in May of 2004. Mark also worked evenings as an orderly at the university's campus psychiatric hospital, which allowed him to attend classes during the day while Lori was at work. As Mark got closer to graduation, Lori's mom helped him write essays for his medical school applications, and those strong essays, coupled with the top MCAT score, got him admitted to his dream program at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. Mark and Lori had visited the campus in June of 2004 and rented an apartment close enough to campus where Mark could ride his bike to classes. Everyone knew that Mark had been accepted to medical school, so it wasn't a surprise when Lori gave notice at work that she would be leaving for good the following month in July of 2004. Just as Mark and Lori were getting ready for this exciting new chapter in life, tragedy struck. On the eve of their big move, Lori went jogging at Memory Grove Park in City Creek Canyon. The couple usually jogged together in the mornings. However, on that fateful morning, Lori decided to let Mark sleep in and went alone, leaving at her usual time at 5.30 a.m. Mark woke up around 8 o'clock a.m. and assumed that Lori had already returned, showered, and left for her last week of work. When Mark called several hours later to speak with Lori, he was transferred to her supervisor and told that Lori uncharacteristically hadn't shown up for work that day. Everyone was concerned because Lori was extremely prompt and responsible. They told Mark to hang up immediately and call 911, which he did. However, the police told him his wife had only been gone a few hours and to call back when it has been 24 hours. 
Mark drove out to Memory Grove and found Lori's car abandoned. It also appeared that there was some blood stains inside her car and on the side mirrors. After the discovery of Lori's car, Mark was in full panic mode. He called his friends and family, begging them to all come out to Memory Grove Park and help look for Lori. At the urging of his family, Mark placed another call to police, and this time they agreed that the circumstances were suspicious, and they immediately sent out two detectives to interview Mark. Now, homicide detective Kelly Kent was immediately suspicious of Mark, especially when she learned that Lori was five weeks pregnant with the couple's first child. When she entered the apartment, she noticed that there were packed boxes in every room for the couple's impending move. They learned that Mark's father, Dr. Paul Hacking, had arranged to take the next week off to help the couple get settled into their new home. One of the first things Detective Kent noticed as she entered the apartment was the presence of Lori's purse, which seems a bit strange to leave behind a purse when she took her car out. Even more strange, inside her purse were her wallet and her car keys. It seemed implausible that Lori had driven herself to Memory Grove if her keys were still at home inside her purse. The next thing of note was the couple's marital bed. The bedding was clearly brand new and unused. The crease marks from the packaging were still apparent, and it was clear that no one had slept on the new bedding. Detective Kent thought it was all odd that the couple would use newly purchased bedding prior to their cross-country move. When she looked a bit closer, she saw some blood spots on the headboard. And her partner, Detective Taylor West, opened a bedside drawer and found a hunting knife covered in blood and fabric fibers. Mark, who suddenly looked like a deer caught in the headlights, said the blood was from a recent hunting trip. This impromptu inspection was beginning to look like a bad idea. Mark, who was trying his best to appear cooperative, was only appearing more and more suspicious. When the detectives asked to look inside Mark's truck, they immediately noticed a receipt on the front seat that was dated for the same day. And this receipt was for the purchase of a brand new mattress and two memory foam pillows. When they asked Mark why he purchased a new mattress while he was allegedly looking for his wife, he said it was an errand that Lori had insisted be done before their move to North Carolina. According to Mark, Lori had recently stained the mattress during her menstrual cycle and wanted to replace the mattress prior to their move to North Carolina. Except Lori was almost six weeks pregnant, so it's unlikely she had a recent incident in the last few days on their old mattress. When Detective Kent questioned his reasoning for the timing of the purchase, he suddenly got quiet and then said, quote, you think I killed her, don't you? End quote. According to an interview Detective Kent gave to the Oxygen Network, she told Mark, quote, No, I don't think you killed her. I know you killed her, and I'm going to prove it, end quote. However, no one else who knew Mark, including Lori's mother or brother, believed he was capable of hurting Lori. They told police right away that Lori was lost somewhere in the canyon or had been kidnapped. They were 100% sure that Mark was innocent and were still hopeful that Lori would be found alive. They thought the police were wasting valuable time by focusing on Mark. Meanwhile, law enforcement looked at the dumpster behind Mark's apartment complex, and they found empty packaging for a brand new mattress, new bedding, and two new pillows. 
The use of the dumpster and Mark's earlier comments about the dumpster's pickup schedule seemed odd. As a result, they checked the dumpster behind the couple's LDS ward and the cameras behind the hospital at the University of Utah. In the LDS dumpster, they found the mattress top from Mark and Lori's bed with bloodstains. It had been cut away from the main mattress, which had never been found, but grainy surveillance footage showed a dark figure the night before around 2 a.m., carrying what looked like a body and placing it inside the dumpster. But all of the trash at the Salt Lake City landfill had already been compressed by 50% of its volume and covered with a layer of dirt. Detective Kent was sure that Lori's body was at the city dump, but finding her body would be like finding a needle in a haystack. One of the first things they did the next day was cancel all the volunteers at Memory Grove Park, which got rumors flying immediately that Mark was somehow involved in Lori's disappearance. Mark's dad confronted his own son and asked him if he were responsible for Lori's disappearance. Mark insisted that he was 100% innocent and Lori could still be in the canyon waiting to be rescued. What Mark's dad didn't know was that the couple had recently bitterly fought over their move to North Carolina. Lori's co-workers reported that on Friday, July 16th, just three days before her disappearance, Lori was so upset after a phone call that she had to leave work early. That argument explained a letter that law enforcement found on a shelf written by Lori the night before she disappeared. Earlier in the day, Lori had called the University of North Carolina inquiring about financial aid for medical school. The person she spoke with checked several databases and said that there was no record of Mark ever having applied to medical school, nor having been accepted into Chapel Hill. When Lori confronted Mark, he was able to carefully talk his way out of his lie by saying it was probably a computer glitch that he would sort out later. But Lori no longer took his lies at face value. She called back the university, this time leaving a message. Her message again asked about Mark's status, and she wanted confirmation that a recent computer glitch had been remedied. It appeared that Mark had told her that the computer glitch had been fixed, and he once again was able to confirm his acceptance to medical school. But that message went unanswered because Mark knew his lies were unraveling. In fact, in their last year of marriage, Lori had confided in a few friends that her marriage was troubled. Lori's gut told her that once again, Mark was lying and there was no computer error. She feared that she was about to move across country for an elaborate lie. That night during their argument, Lori told Mark she was so sick of his lies and this was the biggest one of them all. She had quit her job and was about to move away from her family and friends so her husband could maintain a ruse that he was just as important and successful as his dad and brothers. Now, despite Lori's small stature, everyone said that she was intimidating and had a superior intellect compared to Mark, as well as a biting sarcasm. In the letter found by police, she wrote, quote, Mark, I want to grow old with you, but I can't do it under these conditions. I can't imagine life with you if things don't change. I hate coming home from work because it hurts to be home in our apartment. I have someone I don't want to spend the rest of my life with unless changes are made. End quote. In the letter, it appeared that Lori was realizing the depths of Mark's lies, and for once, she was livid. 
She was extremely angry to learn he had lied about graduating with honors from the University of Utah. In fact, he hadn't attended classes in over two years. Instead, he would only pretend to go to school, only to go back home and play video games all day, which explained his sudden illness on the day of his supposed graduation commencement ceremony. On that day, suddenly, Mark was overcome with a stomach bug and couldn't stop vomiting. It was only after the ceremony was over that he suddenly appeared to get better and was willing to take photos in his graduation gown. He even went so far as to forge a letter of acceptance to medical school in a state and town he was willing to move to in furtherance of his lies. In the letter, Lori also stated that she didn't want to raise a baby in a broken home without a father the way she had grown up. She expected him to man up and make significant changes. To all appearances, the marriage of Mark and Lori Hacking seemed perfect. That false image was all about to be shattered into a million pieces by law enforcement. Just as they were catching up and realizing that Mark had lied about his education and his acceptance to medical school, they got a phone call from dispatch that Mark Hacking was at a downtown hotel, naked except for shoes, babbling about losing his wife and his life being over. When police arrived, he demanded they take him to a psychiatric hospital and have him committed. They weren't buying into Mark's feeble attempt at an insanity plea. Instead, they called his family and suggested they come in and deal with him. Mark's family did take him to the same psychiatric hospital where he worked as an orderly, and he knew exactly what to say to avoid being questioned by police. However, what he couldn't do was avoid being questioned by his own family. By now, police had informed Mark's family that Mark had never graduated from the University of Utah and he had never applied to medical school. They also learned that Lori had discovered Mark's lies and was about to expose him. They went to Mark and demanded he tell them the truth. But Mark continued to deny his involvement in Lori's disappearance. They told him that things didn't look good and to think about his answer and they would be back later that night and they expected the truth. That evening, he told his brothers, Scott and Lance, that he had in fact killed Lori. He gave them a full confession. For two full days, he had gone back and forth deciding if he should kill her or not. Eventually, his darker side won out and murder seemed like the perfect answer. It was a short-term solution to a long-term problem. That night, Lori had once again confronted him about his lies and demanded he come clean with both her family and his family. She also demanded he make real changes, including finishing school for real this time. This was a humiliation that Mark wasn't ready to accept or endure. These lies weren't like the little white lies he told in the past, which she would occasionally catch him in. These were life-altering lies that couldn't be covered up or easily overcome. By exposing Mark's tangled web of lies he spent a lifetime creating, she had destroyed his self-image and was about to expose his dark imperfections to those he felt could never forgive him. He had always gotten away with manufacturing his accomplishments out of thin air. His life up until that point had been nothing but smoke and mirrors with no endgame in sight. Lori had killed his carefully crafted fairy tale, and now Mark was going to kill her. 
He was angry, bitter, and resentful that she had so much control over his life and his short-sighted solution was to end hers. All of his life, Mark had balanced between his white lies, small lies, big lies, and massive lies. He always had a new lie to cover up with an exposed lie. He handled obstacles one at a time without any long-term planning. But this time, his audience was less sympathetic and were looking deeper than others had in the past. They were looking further past the surface of his tall tales. Law enforcement saw right through Mark's lies, and this wasn't a feeling he was used to. Suddenly, he felt vulnerable and exposed. There was no grace or acceptance of a thinly veiled excuse of a misunderstanding. For once in Mark's life, there would be grave consequences for his actions. With all of that in mind, Mark still couldn't help but minimize his confession to his family with more lies. He stated that once Lori went to bed, he still began packing boxes for a move to North Carolina, which now seemed unlikely. As he was packing his things, he came upon his 22 hunting rifle. He walked over to their bed and stood over Lori's sleeping figure. He couldn't allow her to destroy the life he began to fantasize was real. In the most short-sighted of all of his decisions to date, he placed the gun at the back of Lori's head, which was covered in her trademark thick curly locks, and pulled the trigger and solved his problem. But then he had another problem. He had to dispose of Lori's body and craft a new lie to cover up her disappearance. It was now cover-up time. And to be fair, for a lifelong liar, Mark was terrible at this. He used his hunting knife to cut away the blood-soaked pillow top mattress and rolled it up in trash bags along with Lori's body. Then he tied the rest of the mattress to the top of Lori's car, drove the mattress over to his LDS ward, and placed it in the dumpster behind his building. Then he drove to the dumpster behind the University of Utah's psychiatric department and discarded Lori's body, which contained his unborn child, as if they were nothing but meaningless, unwanted trash. And to him, they were. Then he drove Lori's car to Memory Grove and left it there in an effort to pretend that she had gone missing while jogging. He also forgot to move the seat back up to accommodate Lori's petite 5'1 frame. Oops. Then he walked to a liquor store to get cigarettes, something else he lied about. No one knew that Mark was a serial liar and a secret smoker. Smoking cigarettes is frowned upon in the LDS religion. Then he walked home, took a shower, and cleaned the shower with bleach to avoid the detection of blood. Then he drove to the mattress store to purchase a new mattress and two new memory foam pillows. While there, he made a phone call to the police to report his wife missing. Then he realized he should probably call Lori's work first and pretend that he wanted to talk to her so then he could discover that she was missing. So while waiting for the mattress to be secured to his truck, he called her work, spoke to her supervisor, and then pretended to be worried that she hadn't shown up for work. When they told him to call the police, he never even mentioned that he already had, and they told him to give it a few hours. Then he stopped at another store and bought new bedding, all while calling friends and family and asking if they had seen or heard from Lori. He told them all the same story, that she had gone jogging and hadn't shown up for work. 
He made the bed on the new mattress and then drove down the Memory Grove where he pretended to find Lori's car. The same car she apparently drove and left there without her purse, wallet, or car keys. Lori's family was devastated to learn that the boy they watched turn into the man that married their daughter and sister had betrayed them in the worst possible way. Instead of keeping this vow to love and honor and treasure her, he destroyed her and even deprived them of a proper burial for their daughter. In Mark's eyes, Lori had betrayed his secrets and murdered the person that he had created. He would no longer be the brilliant, accomplished son, husband, and future doctor. In an act of sheer vindictiveness, Mark murdered her to avoid being exposed, plain and simple. In his twisted mind, it was self-defense, albeit extremely short-sighted with zero chance at success or preserving the reputation he fought so hard to craft from thin air. He had risked his freedom to maintain his lies. Mark was always a gambler with the truth, and the stakes had never been so high. On August 2, 2004, after almost two weeks of pretending to be suffering a psychiatric break, Mark was finally arrested on suspicion of aggravated murder. They still didn't have Lori's body, and that became their new focus. However, on October 1, 2005, volunteer searchers who had worked tirelessly for almost three months came upon a trash bag that held human hair and a partial jawbone with teeth still intact. Now, the rest of Lori's skull had been crushed into tiny pieces. Altogether, they were able to recover only 15 pounds of flesh and bones, enough for the Soros family to bury her. The Soros family chose to remove the name hacking from Lori's headstone. Thelma Soros said, since it was obviously by Mark's actions that he didn't want her anymore, he shouldn't be allowed to control the name on her headstone. Instead, they engraved it with a Portuguese word that translates to little daughter. On October 29, 2005, Mark Hacking pleaded not guilty to the elevated charges of first-degree murder and tampering with evidence. Lori's mother, Thelma, wrote Mark a letter begging him to reconsider his plea and spare both of their families from the grief, cost, and the further trauma that a publicized trial would bring. So on April 15, 2005, Mark changed his plea in exchange for prosecutors dropping the death penalty. On June 6, he was sentenced to six years to life in prison. Mark was allowed to address the court and stated that, quote, I know prison is where I need to be. I will spend my time there doing all I can to right the many wrongs I have done, though I realize complete atonement is impossible in this life. I have a lot of healing and changing to do, but I hope that someday I can become the man Lori always thought I was. To the many people I have hurt, I am more sorry than you could ever know. Every day, my soul burns in torment when I think of what you must be going through. I wish I could take away your pain. I wish I could take back all the lies I have told and replace them with the truth. I wish I could put Lori back into your arms. My pain is deserved. Yours is not. From the bottom of my heart, I beg for your forgiveness. There is no such thing as a harmless lie, no matter how small it is. You may think a lie only hurts the liar, but this is far from the truth. If you are traveling a path of lies, please stop now and face the consequences. 
Whatever those consequences, they will be better than the pain you are causing yourself and others. End quote. The thought of Mark getting out of prison after only six years was unthinkable to Lori's family. So, as a result, the Utah legislature enacted Utah House Bill 102, known as Lori's Law, which increased the minimum penalty for a person convicted of first-degree murder in Utah to 15 years to life. The Utah Board of Pardon decided that Mark wouldn't be eligible for his first parole hearing until August 2034. Upon hearing the news, Thelma Soros stated that, quote, While it is a terrible waste of his life, the decision lifts a great burden from my mind and heart. The six-year minimum imposed by law is an insult, not to only Lori and the baby, but to me and my family as well. I thank the members of the State Board of Pardons and Parole for their diligence and sense of justice in dealing with this tragic case. My faith in our justice system has been upheld. End quote. In a statement Thelma released to the press following Mark's sentencing, she stated that, quote, It has been a grueling and painful year for me since Mark killed Lori and their unborn child last July, and there are days where I still can't believe it's true. Everything about this bizarre tragedy has devastated me. I loved that young man as if he were my own son, so his betrayal is profound. The dark cloud that hangs over my head never dissipates because the consequences of Mark's decisions to kill his wife and baby are fixed and permanent. Although he had the power to terminate two lives, it is beyond his power to restore them. Justice demands that his life remain irrevocably altered as Lori's, his child, and mine are. I'm relieved that Mark finally entered a guilty plea and that all court proceedings are now complete. I do not wish for bad things to happen to him. I hope he uses his life in prison to accomplish something redemptive for himself and all the good he can do for others. He certainly ought to finish college if he's able to. Regardless of how exemplary a prisoner he may be or become, however, it doesn't alter the chilling fact that he killed my daughter and grandchild and then threw them in the trash with the intent that they'd never be found and that I never know what happened to them. Those acts constitute the very epitome of depraved indifference. End quote. Lori never realized her life and the life of her baby was in danger as she went to sleep on her last night of life. That's because she never experienced physical violence in her relationship. She had no idea how far Mark was willing to go to keep up the pretenses of a fake life filled with honor and accomplishment. Instead, she suffered unknowingly under the thumb of a husband who controlled her with gaslighting and coercive control. October is Domestic Violence Awareness Month, which is why we have covered a variety of cases this month, which fall under the spectrum of domestic violence, intimate partner violence, emotional abuse, and coercive control. We hope if you recognize some of these patterns, red flags, or themes in your life or someone close to you, that you reach out for help. If you or your loved one is suffering from domestic violence, there are resources available to help someone safely make a plan to escape. There is help, even if you feel like there is no one who can help you. The National Domestic Violence Hotline can be reached 24-7 at 800-799-2733 or by text at 88788. 
Thank you all so much for listening to this week's episode. We will be with you next week. Crime Salad is a Weird Salad production. Are you kidding me? That was perfect. (laughs) 